Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello and welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. My name is Nicholas Wittstock, and for today's episode, we have a special guest, Professor Wendy Wong. Wendy is Professor of Political Science and Principal Research Chair at the University of British Columbia. She is an international relations scholar who focuses on global governance, human rights, and civil society. Her two previous books are Internal Affairs and The Authority Trap, which she co-authored with Sarah Strope. Um, More recently, Wendy has leveraged this prior experience to study the intersection of technology and politics. Uh, She's here today to discuss her new book, We the Data. Human Rights in the Digital Age with James Long, Professor of Political Science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here with Professor Wendy Wong, who has just published a new book titled We the Data, Human Rights in the Digital Age. I loved the book. It's not only very timely and important, but it's also highly readable, well-written, and often very funny in places. So congrats, Wendy, and thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that lovely feedback. So in the book, you tackle what you see as the problem of datafication, and you proceed to apply a human rights framework to understand that problem. First, can you define what you mean by datafication? Sure. It's I think it's just trying a term that's trying to capture how our daily activities as human beings, a lot of our behaviors are being captured and recorded as, as digital data these days. And so rather than things just happening without any sort of record that lasts for a long time, we now have um, companies often collecting information about very everyday activities that we engage in. And so that's really the the process of datafication is is taking behavior and making it into data. So why do you apply a human rights framework to this problem? And what does that mean? And what do you uh, what made you think of that approach? One of the things that I think is often missing from the conversation about AI regulation and, and governance is the importance of data and the the datafication of human life uh, more specifically. And if we think about just our everyday interactions with one another, um, if you think about how you interact with people from work or your friends, a lot of those those interactions are mediated by digital technologies, which are often reliant upon huge pools of data to work properly. And, and you know, in saying that, AI as a general basket of technologies is also tremendously data hungry. And without these data, and in particular data about people's activities, a lot of the predictions that AI systems make would not be very useful for us. So I think it was really important to tie together the role of data with the advent of AI technologies and the advance of those technologies. But then since, you know, in thinking about the pervasiveness of digital technologies in our lives, it was also really important to recognize how much digital technologies and datafication are fundamentally changing our human experiences. And so if human experiences of of life are being affected, you know, in, in this day and age, we tend to think about those through the lens of human rights, which are about human potential, about protecting um certain aspects of life so that everyone can live to their fullest potential as human beings. So you're talking about I mean, not just our personal data, like my age, my gender, my profession. You're talking about the tweets that I tweet, the websites that I that I uh, go on and buy things and things like that. If I'm driving uh, an electric car, uh, the sort of patterns of driving that can be recorded um, perhaps even my face if I'm going through an airport. I've, I've noticed recently going through American airports when you fly internationally, they just, you pull down your mask and they they take a picture yep. of your face. Just, all of that is included in what you're talking about. 
Yeah, I mean, I, thanks for for bringing that in. Yes, exactly. So, so in my earlier definition of datafication, what I did mean to say is that that the process of collecting data about human behavior and 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 you know aspects of human life has become very pervasive in our everyday life. So, you pointed to a lot of um, dynamics and data collection points that we may be aware of. You are aware of your tweets, right? You are aware when you walk through an area that uses facial recognition technology. Often it's it's noted that that's what's happening. But also think about the ways that your devices that you rely on on an everyday basis. I know I rely on my smartphone tremendously. You know, that is a device that is filled not only with sensors that tell, you know, that tell companies who are collecting the data what direction the phone is facing, for example, but also are packed full of apps that are tracking where you are, how you do, how you live your life, what are you doing when you have your, you know, your social media applications open, how and, and what what types of things are you doing? So it's it's not just explicit stuff, it's also stuff that you actually aren't probably aware of. And that's really why datafication is, in my mind, fundamentally changing our lives and our experience of, of our lives. I would just also add that, you know, you pointed out this idea of personal data. And I actually think because of how granularly um, our activities are being tracked, the line between personal and quote, impersonal data is actually getting pretty fuzzy. So we are used to thinking about things like name, date of birth, social security number, address as personal information. But, you know, is your commute pattern personal information? Is your face personal information? Is your gait personal information? And gait as in the way you walk. I mean, I think that there are so many aspects of our lives that are being captured as data. And because they can be cross-referenced with other data, it's becoming less and less clear what is personally identifying information, like a name, when in fact, you know, data scientists can probably deduce who you are um, through other types of data that may not seem as, quote, personal um, in, in nature. This is making me think, Wendy, um, I think it was yesterday, Special Counsel Jack Smith in the January 6th insurrection case apparently submitted a list of three expert witnesses that the government plans to call against Trump where it appears that they collected metadata on his personal phone that he was using at the time of the insurrection, and that that might provide mm -hmm. very interesting um, evidence at trial. Yeah, and, you know, metadata, which is data about data, right? So information about how data is transmitted, so what kind of devices people are using, for example. Um, that's not typically considered personal data, but, you know, Metadata has been used to track the whereabouts of of uh, you know accused terrorists, for example, in in different conflicts, and they are used. Metadata are used in in ways to track individuals that we might start thinking you know it's more personal than none. But but typically, metadata is not thought of as personal data. You and I have known each other for a long time, and I think of you as a scholar of international relations and human rights, and your previous work looking at how activists and NGOs have, have tried to advocate for human rights protections at the international level in, in international relations. What, it was surprising to me that you kind of got into this technology space, and I'm interested to know, like, what was the connection between your prior work that seemingly would not be related to technology and how you made that linkage between human rights, international relations, and technology? You know, it's funny you ask that, because as I was writing the book, I was also thinking that myself. Um, and you're right to point out, we've known each other for a very long time. And, you know, I probably didn't talk to you much about, you know, the internet or or social media or any of those things that are now um, so prominent in my thinking. So this book, I just want to give a bit of context. It really came about at a time in my personal life where I was kind of at a crossroads. I just come back from Matt leave and I'd gotten promoted to full professor and I was just trying to figure out what it was I wanted to work on. And, you know, in thinking about the sorts of things that people were sharing about their children at this time, um, being a new parent, I started thinking about, well, the, what are the processes by which these data are being evaluated? How are they, how are they being used? And I started learning about AI and at first being very frightened about it because I think the writing at that time, so this is 2019, 2020, early 2020, 
people were writing about it as though it was going to really change the human experience to the point where some would argue that we would become computers or that we could become immortal by having all of our brain data uploaded and dumped onto a hard drive somewhere. And I thought that is just a, a fundamental shift in human life and how and, and how we know it. Um, you know, probably as dramatic as like colonizing Mars or something. And I thought, well, why aren't people talking about this fundamental change in human rights terms? And so I really started thinking about, well, what did that mean? And, you know, people have talked about it, about AI and data in particular in terms of privacy. And I, you know, we can talk more about this. I find that to be a, a very incomplete way to think about why human rights matter in the digital age. And so I sort of started digging into my own expertise on, on human rights and thinking about the history of activists working in that space, how they were able to change conceptions around human rights um, and, and win battles with states over, you know, for example, uh, the protections against torture and ill treatment, right? Thinking about how they were able to overcome some of these huge challenges that people probably at the outset thought were never going to happen and become international human rights law. So I think that's really where this started. And I think as the project developed, I also realized that some of our basic understandings of collective action, which formed the basis of thinking about how civil society responds to political and social conditions, um, they don't work that well in the digital age because we're used to thinking about collective action taking place when people know what group they are. You can be an activist if you know what you know, you belong to a certain political stripe or you are a certain, you know, you belong to a certain type of person, a certain type of identity, rather. But what happens when we're all these, we've become all these data points in this big pool of data about people and it's companies or governments doing the sorting for us. So part of what makes AI so useful is that a lot of times algorithmic analysis is superior to human analysis when we look at giant pools of data. So what are the types of categories and analytical um, analytical constructs that algorithms are making about us and, and really trying to make predictions about people's behaviors that we're not even fully aware of, right? There are all these different ways that algorithms sort us into collectives that we are never probably going to know the significance of or the existence of those things. And yet that's kind of how we're thought of in society a lot of times. So the four values within human rights that you explore are liberty, or what we might call autonomy, dignity, equality, and community. Can you explain what these are and give examples of how they interact with datafication? I mean, this is the heart of the book. And so when I, when I started thinking about human rights, as I said before, one of the things I didn't really want to do was go down the road of here's a human right we have, let's say freedom of expression or privacy. And here is how the digital age affects those things. Because I do think as, as um, AI changes, as other digital technologies progress, we're going to have different fights to fight. And so what I wanted to do is step back. And this is why I ended up focusing on these four values you just mentioned, um, autonomy, dignity, equality, and community, because I think those are really important values that are, are still very prominent in human society, you know, post-AI, post-datification. And they're also the values that are the foundation of the international human rights framework. So I really trace this back to the negotiations over the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948. You know, at that time, they created 30 articles that protected all kinds of human rights. And what justified the existence of those articles were these four values of autonomy, dignity, equality, and community. Um, at the time, community was called brotherhood, but I, I updated that term because I felt it was pretty gendered and, and not really in line with the times. And I used the word autonomy and not liberty in part because what I really think is, is um, being tested these days with AI and with data is this agential feeling and the capacity for human beings to be agents in the world. And I think actually autonomy captures that better than liberty. So, um, you know, I, I think we can talk more about how um, datafication plays out in the specific chapters, but I do think a lot of the, the issues with um, how AI and data have played out um, in terms of thinking about 
um, the values of autonomy, dignity, equality, and community is that it changes how we relate to each other, right? We can think about how these different technologies both shift our abilities to make choices, to act as agents in the world, um, and certainly how different types of people are treated because of, of data about them. And, and I think also thinking about uh, issues of dignity and, and how we're all of our activities are becoming data and being treated as commodities, I think is a real shift in how we think about uh, each individual's uh, worth in the world. So Wendy, I confess to being a bit flummoxed both in the in this conversation and reading the book, because on the one hand, to be honest, your book did scare me. Uh, it definitely takes all these techno evangelists and tech bros to task by documenting, uh, documenting many ways that datafication is recording many things about our personal lives. And I think that's very disturbing to a lot of people. And these are things that we have some control over in certain instances or could opt out of in some ways, but not in others. Um, and moreover, tech companies have been less than honest about their use of our personal data. And I think you do a really good job in the book of documenting some instances of that. But on the other hand, I don't feel like I've had my human rights violated by, say, a meta or Twitter by either kind of what they produce or, or the types of data they may have collected about me. I'm definitely a dumber person for spending time on Facebook or on Meta um, in, in Twitter, but I'm not sure that I perceive my human rights as having been violated for doing so, at least in the way that I traditionally think of human rights violations, things like the government being repressive or denying me bodily autonomy or other kinds of rights. So how do you, how do you square for the reader that this really is like a, a fundamental concern that is maybe not equivalent, but at least analogous to the types of civil rights that we think we otherwise want to have secured from the government? I like I like this question. It's a really complicated question. So I just want to say before I forget that you point out something really important that I I think in our, our day and age, we cannot always say that when we think about human rights, we're thinking about government relationships to individuals or groups. And I think that more and more our, our interactions with each other, because that's really what human rights are about, right? It's about saying governments cannot prevent us from associating with other people we want to associate with. For example, if we're not committing crimes, right? Um, or governments cannot tell me what I can or cannot say. That's freedom of expression. I think that What's happening in, in this day and age with datafication and with big tech companies developing um, advanced AI is that they are actually, in a lot of ways, determining how our rights are being exercised. And so I talk about this in the book in terms of uh, meta and its, its governance, its ability to structure freedom of expression on its platforms. But I think it's it's generalizable. I mean, you know, to your comment about being dumber, like it, it's, but you know, being dumber is sort of a flippant way to say that in a way your knowledge about the world is being filtered by the algorithms that meta, you know, meta being Facebook or Instagram or, you know, Twitter or TikTok or whatever, these platforms are telling you how to think. Right, because they're saying, okay, well, if you like this video about cats, you're going to like this video about cats or this video about hamsters, and in that sense, they are they are affecting the way you experience the world, especially through information, um, and and without the uh, sort of, it's very hard to to break out of those systems, and I think that really affects you know our freedom of information, our our freedom of conscience, which is you know how we think, how we feel, um, this idea of of our our rights to have, you know, free thought. So I think that's part of it. I, I don't think it's big tech is not gonna be um affecting our rights in the same way that governments can through force and coercion and, and physical harm. I think that's another recognition this book is really trying to turn us to that human rights at least at the international level, were really constructed for physical harm and physical constraints. And in, I don't think we can continue thinking that human rights are about that. But I also discourage people from thinking about the fact that, oh, maybe we need a digital bill of rights, or maybe we need human rights uh, online. 
you know, it's not it's not that the physical and the digital are separable. In fact, they're intertwined. And I think it's ever more important to understand human life that way, that these two these two dynamics affect one another one another. Um, you know, data about your activities is going to feed back on the types of choices that you might have. But if I mean, getting to this kind of public, you know, the 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 government is typically how we have thought about human rights. We think of the Bill of Rights as being something in a constitution, you know, governed by a public agency, which is the state with citizens participating as individuals or as groups of civil society. Big tech is private organizations and their motives are profit driven. They're not public organizations whose motives are at some level to stay in power and provide you know, some level of the social good so that the people don't rebel and replace the government, right? So then how do we think about what big tech's role would be in providing or upholding rights if they are private entities and they are profit driven? I think that the distinction, I mean, look, I think the for-profit, non-profit distinction, right? What governments are, are non-profit entities in this in this way, right? Um, they're not doing, they're not providing policing to make money or they're not providing education to, to, for, at a, at a profit. But I think what big tech companies are doing are creating platforms on which millions or billions of people interact. So in the book, I call this, you know, they're, they're creating infrastructure. I mean, think of, I, I know we all like to love and hate social media, but that is where many, many people get their information. That is where many, many people interact with other people, whether that's family, friends, or people they want to argue with, right? I think, look, Facebook, before it became meta, Facebook actually, uh, but and its uh, various related platforms like Instagram crashed for a few hours. Um, and what this really showed was, okay, so the systems crashed and it resulted in huge financial losses because what what it's not that Facebook is just a platform for sharing pictures or or you know like funny news it's that people are transacting transacting financially on these platforms they're making a living on these platforms they're literally communicating with each other this is the only way they can is through WhatsApp they're not calling each other they're texting um they're texting through WhatsApp or they're using WhatsApp as their phone rather than a phone service. So in other words, that example of Facebook crashing really showed how critical the infrastructure that just one company had made was for the entire world, right? And, and I think, you know, also uh, we often forget that people use their Facebook login credentials for lots of other websites, like to access uh, services to access the news. And so when Facebook was down, none of that would work for anybody who would who use those logins. And I think that that's also really important to show that, you know, this is just one company. They have reach uh, globally of between three and four billion people. That is just way more than any government can actually legitimately claim to govern. And I think that shows not just the economic power of these companies, but actually their political importance and their and their importance for social social fabrics and and uh, links between people. You do cite that on balance, uh, it seems like at least in recent election, Democrats and Biden have been more likely to benefit from donations from these big tech companies than Republicans. Is that is that more or less kind of what you're thinking is? We we typically think of big donors as being you know, the industrialists of your who donated to the Republican Party, but these tech companies have been, it, it seems a little bit more liberal in their personality or maybe libertarian, but the, the Democratic Party has really tried to develop deep ties with them uh, in terms of campaign financing. You know, I can't comment on the, the recent uh, patterns for that. I think what I was trying to do with that example was to show that companies are not just quote for profit, right? They're actually trying to engage and influence the political process with with money, as it were. But they they're not blind to political dynamics. I mean, I think you know a lot has happened since those that study that you're, I was looking at was published. I mean, I don't know. I mean, right now the the political wins. I mean, look at who bought Twitter. Look at I mean, look at Elon Musk's personal politics. I don't know um, how that particular um, distribution of campaign finance would look today if we looked at the data that's more updated. So, so I think I think that that's really 
difficult to um not difficult but i think that's a that's definitely a, a, a an interaction or a, a type of activity of big tech companies that i'd love to know more about yeah i mean it, it's interesting that you bring him up because i remember around about the time that he bought twitter he talked about how he had considered himself a democrat or, or donated to the democrats before and how he was kind of rethinking that in his kind of made up war against wokeness and all the rest of it uh so i could see that changing it's i i, I wouldn't know what in his life made that happen um but I think you you actually talk about in a really interesting way, you talk about Twitter sort of uh, taking must to task in his claims that Twitter is a global public square. Could you say a little bit about why you sort of don't agree with that or that phrasing doesn't really capture what public squares are and what public squares are meant to be about? I mean, I think, yeah, I, uh, look, a public square is intended to be open to the public with with I mean, in the sense that the public should have a stake in deciding the rules of what happens in the square. And, you know, when you engage with the private, privately owned platform like Twitter or, you know, any of Meta's platforms, you're following their rules. And so in that sense, it's not a public square. And people treated Twitter, I think, before Musk bought it as though it was the public square, you know, as the transition to Musk's ownership was happening. And in and, and the aftermath, I think there was a lot of lamenting about the loss of Twitter as a public square. But truth be told, I think Twitter was never, quote, a public square in the way that we might want to think about, which is a place where everyone in the community can engage. And that, you know, the other thing that I think is really important um, is that there are rules, but the rules are not, you know, from nowhere. They are ideally coming from the community and, re and receive reinforcement and enforcement from the very people who use that space. I think that's something super important to remember. And therefore, you know, you really, I think we really have to start thinking about public spaces and, and um, public spaces in our society as places where people, all kinds of people can truly engage. And I think those are getting excessively uh, scarce these days. Well, and also you make the point, which I, which I think is really core to what we research and teach, which is that public squares are typically local things, not global things. That's right. And then Twitter could be, I mean, it doesn't mean everybody in the world has Twitter, but Twitter is a, has a global presence. It's not a local thing by any means. No, and I mean, and I think that the to, more to the point, though, like the localness is is really how the community can enforce, right? If and like knowing who belongs and who's in, which creates its own problematic dynamics, right? Don't get me wrong; I don't think public squares are something to romanticize, but I do think that the idea of the public square was that this space belongs to everybody, and everybody is free to engage within certain bounds. And we have to have toleration and and understanding for for what happens within those bounds, um, because they reflect who we are. So, you know, I, I whether you like Twitter before or after Musk's takeover, I don't I think the point really is, is that Twitter belongs to its shareholders it doesn't belong to any we just happen to to use it right all of us in the in the global community who did have that um as a social media platform so one idea that you explore is that as you say data are co-created which gets to the idea of whether or not we should think of data that is our own data as like property or something over which we retain property rights that is the right that would give us exclusive ownership to buy, sell, or use that property. And property rights are essential to the study of political economy. So I wanted to ask you this specifically about this because I thought it was an interesting theme throughout the book. But you abjure thinking about datification in terms of property rights. Can you say why? Um, yeah, so my basic answer is that when we think about data only in terms of property rights, we're thinking about data as economic commodities and, and goods. And so we're missing the human part the people from whom the data have come, right? It just cuts that off. And, and even if you financially compensate people for quote their data, I mean, it's, we, people have, have, you know, started businesses based on this model. Um, it's excess, it's exceedingly small amounts of money. It's, you know, not, especially in the developed world, you know, I don't, I don't think these are amounts of money that, that uh, will make anyone quit their day job. Okay. So that, that's sort of, I think the general idea is that 
that uh, when we when we sort of assign property rights to data, it really focuses on one aspect of, of data, which is that it's an economic good. But in the book, really what I'm trying to get us to think about is how the tie to living human beings changes or should change how we think about data. So, you know, is is it only about our labor? I don't think so. I mean, me walking down the street to go buy groceries or get on the bus, or that's not labor. That's just me being me doing my thing. And and yet there are data being collected about those activities. And so it's becoming data of that nature is about who I am, my very identity, and that's being commoditized, right? So I think this actually pushes against some of the core human value, human rights values I want to talk about in the book, like dignity. Is it treating someone as though they have inherent worth if we're taking data about them and their, their sort of everyday mundane activities and commoditizing them? In the book, when I talk about co-creation, what I want to point out is that there is a basic problem with claims that use property rights um, to think about data, because as you and I know, you know, we're social scientists, data don't exist. They have to be created. You have to code the data. You have to, as a researcher, figure out what it is you're trying to learn, what things you can observe, and how you can systematically record them. These are all important choices that then lead to the creation of data. And when you study human beings and their behavior, you need two things. You need a data source, so all of us doing our thing, and you need data collectors who are the people who are interested in collecting information about what we're doing all the time. In the absence of either party, you do not have data about people. And so this actually, because it is a co-creative process and that you need both the source and a collector, this actually creates huge problems for claiming property. So on the one hand, I think a lot of people say, well, that's my data. It's data about you, but you didn't actually make the data yourself, right? Somebody else, Google, Meta, whoever, any Clearview AI, these are companies that have gone out there, taken observables and made the data. And so you are a part of it, but you're not the only part of, or the only creator of that data. Okay, but you, let me press you on this because you have a chapter uh, dedicated to facial recognition technology. And surely if we have a property right over anything, it's our actual body and face and reproductions of those in images, right? Uh, the law on this is not super clear. I, I mean, I thought that too. I mean, when I started writing that chapter, so, I mean, this chapter really came out of a piece that I wrote after January 6th. So after January, the Capitol riots of, of January 6th, a lot of um, people were using facial recognition to try to identify the participants in the riot. And this was seen as a really positive thing for law enforcement. Um, and, and my thinking about that was, okay, well, we're using this really powerful tool to to, you know, to track people who have committed crimes, who have done something bad. But isn't that, I mean, isn't that something that we live in a, you know, day and age where our very faces have become think objects that can be separated from our, you know, our physical face and used to track our whereabouts um, online. And so the question is, does your face belong to you? I think as long as it's attached to you, yes, that absolutely is the case. But actually, looking at U.S. law and what happens when you're when something is separated from your actual body, it's not clear that that is yours anymore. So if you lost a finger, um, and you know you leave it at the doctor's office or you leave it at the hospital, it's not con it's considered detritus. And so, you know, like if you, we, we don't have a straightforward claim to our body parts once they are decoupled from our bodies. So that's the first. So like thinking about that in terms of facial recognition, then, you know, is data about your face the same thing as your face, number one? And number two, is it okay for, is it okay for people to, to take your physical face or a picture of your face and make data about it is that is that treating people with dignity is that treating people as though they have autonomy in the world and this these are the open questions that i raise in 
that chapter you reference on facial recognition, because I think a lot of times people think about this in terms of privacy. Well, my question is, what is private about your face? We, you know, in in North America, we use our faces to interact with other people socially all the time. So we're not hiding our faces. There's nothing private about our face. So can we say that facial data are therefore private? Um, I think that's really the wrong framing. I think it's really about treating people as though they have dignity, as though they have worth. So I agree with you. You know, our faces are so important to us as individuals, as a species, um, you know, in, in terms of thinking about childhood development, babies can recognize faces very, very quickly in their development. So I take your question and, you know, I think you're right to push back on it, but I, I don't think there's a good answer, at least not an answer that is as straightforward as your, as your question would seem to lead us to. Well, you also then explore the idea of what you call data as sticky. And then you have an entire chapter on how we should think about our data once we are dead. And honestly, I, I had never thought about this until, until I read this. Um, and whether we should extend certain rights to folks after they have passed on with respect to the data legacy they leave. And you start with the very funny anecdote of Robert Kardashian, who died in the early 2000s, appearing as a hologram at Kim Kardashian's birthday, I think more or less 20 years later. I was actually at Coachella when the uh, the the hologram of Tupac showed up when Dr. Dre yeah. and Snoop Dogg were performing. Yeah. And I had never seen it at that time. I can't remember what year it was. I was uh, people were confused at first because it looked so realistic that everybody knew Tupac was dead. And, you know, there's always been rumors about whether or not he actually did die or whether he, he's yeah. still living yeah. with Osama bin Laden on some on some island. But I remember being very unsettled in the moment because it it seemed like cheap and gimmicky, and it also seemed inappropriate, but I couldn't really think about why. Can I, let me just, no, I'm supposed to answer questions, but like what, what made you feel, okay, would you feel differently if it was a flawless hologram? Like if it just wasn't, if it didn't seem like a hologram, if it just seemed like Tupac? Yeah, because I know he's dead. I mean, I would, I mean, I think one of the things you do in the chapter is you talk about when people have done this with people they know in their own yeah. lives. And I guess in a weird way, like I would be less comfortable with seeing a dead relative than seeing a dead celebrity, to be honest. But I do feel like if it were my relative, I've had more, I've had more say in the, I, I, I guess it's like, I, I would only maybe do it if their wishes allowed it or for some other reason, like it was more of a private thing. To me, it seems very inappropriate for two celebrities who, uh, you know, we we didn't come to Coachella thinking we were going to see Tupac. We knew we were going to see Snoop Dogg and Dre for them to sort of violate something about Tupac's life and image in a way that he has no consent over. Um, yeah. So to me, it would be more disturbing if I saw like a, a dead grandparent than a celebrity. But to me, the dead grandparent seems less of a violation of rights than a celebrity. Yeah, I, so I, I, the reason I push back is just because I think this question is at the heart of thinking about human life. What does it mean to be human? Because I think, um, you know, historically, when you died, you died, right? Like that you physically died, you physically leave people's lives, you no longer interact with the living. And for, you know, for better, or for worse, of course, like people miss you, they grieve you, they a lot of, you know, a lot of times, people remember the dead with fondness and, and want to celebrate their, their memory. I mean, so this is, it's an unfortunate part of, of hum, human life that we do die. So, you know, I, I think, the possibility of having a digital representation of a person after they're physically gone or not, right? This, I mean, this could actually happen when you're still alive, right? You can you can create these digital doubles, like Carmelo Anthony has has made one, for example, um, the basketball player. Um, so so I think what this really pushes against is what you're saying. Like there's choice, right? There's consent, there's agency. And this is why I think, you know, um, maybe it is perhaps more wrong, quote unquote, in the human rights sense to bring back celebrities because they, you know, someone like Robert Kardashian or Tupac, they died so long ago, there was no way they could have even 
made this kind of an adjacent choice. And so there is that autonomy aspect. There's also, you know, the autonomy of the people who are still living. Like, do they want to keep re, re um, interacting with someone who's gone? I mean, on the other hand, you do have people who may want to be able to speak to their relatives when they're when they're dead. And maybe people miss their parents or grandparents and they would love that kind of opportunity. But there's a sort of inequality issue here, too. These technologies are expensive. They're, you know, they, we have questions of, you know, access to them, but also are they susceptible to digital glitches going forward? There's some practical issues. But I think really importantly, it speaks to um how much data are out there about us such that these digital creations are possible. And I think the more realistic they get, the more that actually speaks to the troubling amount of data that are out there about all of us. So let's turn to let's turn to a less uh, macabre subject, I guess. But um, but yeah, I do want to credit you for writing that chapter. I think that's just kind of an interesting thing that mo most social scientists don't really think about that. And are confronted yeah. with it. Um, but I wanted to turn to the role that you document that big tech companies such as Meta, Apple, Amazon, Google, and others have played um, not only as the source of the problem around datafication, but also what you envision as their role should be in the solution. I mean, I think this is a, this is a tough one because to this point, I don't think they've been really forced to think about themselves as part of the solution. I think when the going got tough, people like Mark Zuckerberg and Sam Altman more recently have just been like, well, okay, we need regulation, right? And, and in fact, you know, if you look at the White House executive order on, on AI, a lot of it parrots back the talking points of these these AI developers. So, you know, like they're, they are trying to influence the regulation process. And they're not being told, you know, I think, I don't think there's enough voices from other fields. So, so those who are not involved in um, the development of the technology to talk about what responsibilities these companies have. I mean, you know, it could, why don't these companies hire more and take more seriously people who actually study things like justice and human rights and you know the effects of technology on on society right why, why is it that you know we're we're sort of left to critique them from the outside rather than being part of the product development i think part of it is the way we think about these technologies that they're somehow going to save humanity from ourselves something like that, that they're sort of outside of who we are. And I've been doing this a lot is reminding people that AI is a human invention. And, you know, the data that human that AI runs on is the result of human behavior and human intention to collect that behavior, right? So, so we have to remember that AI and data are human technologies and human artifacts. I mean, I think that we, you know, companies should be encouraged to think about data minimization techniques, for example. So almost all the legislation out there is really about punishing companies when they do wrong things. So if you, you know, looking at the European model, like if you use it, for, um, thinking about, you know, violations of the uh, general data protection regulation, for example, the GDPR, fines of like millions of dollars are an important governance tool. But what about if we incentivize companies to treat data differently or to create different types of AI technologies that don't rely on excessive amounts of data about human behaviors? I mean, that's another way that tech companies could use their expertise and that policymakers could actually reach in their toolkit instead of you know, using sticks, they can use carrots to get companies to do things better. Well, I want to ask you in a second about government regulation, but I wanted to ask you before that, you, you have a chapter on Meta and the Oversight Board. And, you know, I kind of see that as like an independent sort of technical unit within the company itself that's helping the company to govern itself in ways that we've been talking about. Do you, what's your sort of um, optimism or pessimism about that model? Do you think it's worked for Meta? And do you see that as a plausible scenario for other country or other companies to try to adopt as well? So Meta, and actually Meta developed this when it was still called Facebook. So it used to be called the Facebook Oversight Board. And the idea behind the board was to give the company 
a binding decision on controversial content that had been either removed or posted and to decide on whether um, they could justify either the removal or the or the retention based on human rights. And so the oversight board explicitly operates um, think uh, in consideration of the freedom of expression. But actually, if you look at their um, their decisions, they're they're citing all kinds of human rights. So, so but regardless, this is Meta is really the only company that has come up with this board that makes these kinds of decisions um, for its own platforms, which of course have reverberations for the people on on their platforms, so billions of people globally. Um, and these kind of rulings are about single cases, but it really the the effect is that every single like case will have the same kind of either removal or or retention decision applied. I don't know if I feel optimistic or pessimistic. I think it's this is when I put on my political science hat. Like I think this is such an explicit form of governance, right? Of of non-state governance. Um, a lot of times in international relations, when we look at non-state governance, we're really dancing around the issue. I think a lot of a lot of us who have studied the effects of, for example, civil society, note that, you know. NGOs are making changes to to influence some sort of world political outcome. The oversight board is literally making these outcomes, right? They're making decisions. They don't influence anybody. They just apply those decisions. I mean, if this is not governance 101, right, which is, you know, creating shared expectations around, you know, common outcomes and, and really creating rules and enforcing the rules. I mean, I don't know what would be governance. So in that sense, you know, when I talk about the oversight board, I don't know if I have a positive or negative opinion about it. I think it's analytically really interesting. I think it's it's part of a suite of things that that Meta has been doing to try to, or rather, to in which in effect have um, have governance effects on how we live our lives, how we express ourselves, how we access technology, how we access information, um, and I think that's that's governance. So let's talk about government too and regulation. And I think okay. that, you know, I see your point that a lot of us, particularly Americans, have kind of walked into this datification problem. You know, we're not really aware of it. But I do think when you try to have a conversation about regulation of these platforms or companies, a lot of Americans are nervous, one, just for kind of free speech protections, but also two, you know, maybe I do or don't trust Washington to legislate on things like healthcare or infrastructure or, you know, the, the feds rate or something like that. But I definitely don't trust them to regulate things on technology because the hallowed walls of the Senate and the house don't seem to me to be filled with the types of people who even understand how to unlock their iPhone, let alone sort of what these technologies are doing. And I, I always feel like when people like Zuckerberg or others go to testify, it's always this general embarrassment on the part of the government, not on the part of the companies. So I just worry, like, do, does our, does the United States government have the capacity and the, in the ability to sort of have the facts at their disposal to properly regulate it in terms of how these, how this, how these companies actually operate, but also are we not correct to be nervous of the government trying to regulate them because of other types of protections like free speech? I'm not, I mean, I don't know why free speech would come into it unless we're talking about like content moderation, right? So so I'm not sure if that's where you're going with that. I mean, more generally, it is the government's job, at least in the modern day and age, the way we think about the government, they are supposed to be governing. Now, I think, I think, you know, given what I just said, I mean, it's clear that that certain big tech companies are able to govern or effectively govern through their platforms and through their technologies. And I think that's something that maybe we should come to terms with as well, is that the nature of the products that are being created by your Microsoft, your Google, um, your Meta, they are, or Apple, um, these are things that really shape how we understand the world, whether it's character counts or who qualifies to be a, po a legitimate podcast? If we think about Apple's influence over the podcast industry. These are governance decisions, 
And I think, you know, we do turn to government because they're supposed to be acting in the public interest. If we think about, as you said before, if we think about companies working in their private profit-seeking interests, then certainly governments would be the first place we would turn to look for the public interest. I mean, I take your point about, you know, th this technology changes so quickly, or what we call AI and the sort of technologies associated with it changes very quickly. And so, you know, it's not a surprise that senators don't understand how their phones work or how printers work, you know? I mean, I think that that many people are not thinking about how these technologies work or they kind of think, oh, this is, they're magical or, you know, this AI is super smart and it comes up with these answers. And there's the, the process is black box, literally through the code, right? A lot of the most advanced AI systems are black boxes because uh, they're designed to be that way. The computers learn themselves through the data. So I, I don't think I don't think it's, I mean, it's easy to take pot shots at the government in terms of how they're going to regulate, but I actually think the bigger problem is that a lot of the legislation is being influenced by people who talk technical speak. So, you know, looking at the EU AI Act, which just, you know, was, I mean, reached all, the penultimate stage a few days ago um, to much fanfare. You know, this is the first global uh, or the first regionally applicable regulation on how AI should or should not be used. OK, it's it's great in a lot of ways. It's really a big step. However, one of I think one of the ways that is really problematic in the way they think about whether AI should be used or not, they use factors of risk. Right. So there's like, you know, things that are totally intolerable are, are super high risk. You can never, never use AI in, in ways like get assigning social credit and and um, certain types of facial recognition. But then there are things that are, uh, you know, more medium risk that require evaluation and things that are low or, or no risk at all. This idea of risk is a very corporate language. Right. And why not think about this as you know, threats to freedom or threats to justice, right? Why is it framed in terms of risk? Because if you're truly, if you're truly concerned with human rights, which is how this AI act is framed, you know, you would be thinking about not risk of human rights violation, but actually what are the real threats to human rights that are happening as a result of the use of these kinds of technologies? You, you also talk about the importance of what the user brings to this, and that's always my favorite topic or one of my favorite topics to talk about, which is that a lot of the problem with aspects of datafication, not, not the kind of foundations that you deal with uh, writ large, but kind of more specifically, like, wh why do people retweet things that are misinformation or why, are, why do people look at this source of information on this platform as opposed to this other, uh, other source gets to data literacy. And you talk about the important role that like actual libraries, if anybody remembers what those are, might play in helping to sort of, sort of boost data literacy. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about what you think universities are doing with data literacy and whether professors are teaching it either enough and, and, and teaching it well, either in courses designed specifically for data literacy or whether we are bringing data literacy components into everything that we teach uh, in such a way that would support what your argument is. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know. This is just so, I'm not, I'm speaking just from my experience as a university educator, because I don't, I don't know generally, but I would think that data literacy as a topic is probably not explicitly taught in very many places. Now, you know, again, I think as a political scientist, in the process of teaching about some substantive topic like international relations or thinking about human rights, we ask students to evaluate the validity of different data claims, right, and the use of evidence. So I think in that sense, we do do that in the university classroom. But I think that's a little bit too late, right? Or that's not that's not the only place data literacy can happen. So when I talk about data literacy in the book, and, and I actually make the claim that in order to realize our right to education, which everyone has as a universal human right, we cannot continue to think about education without thinking about data literacy. So we we as human beings should have a right to data literacy given datafication and given the state and development of AI technologies going forward. 
So data literacy is not about being a data expert. It doesn't mean that you should be a data scientist or a computer scientist. Data literacy is about understanding the process by which data are created. So earlier we talked about how data don't just exist in nature. We, someone has to go and make data. Someone has to collect data. And I think a lot of times, you know, when I, when I've given a lot of talks about, about this and about data literacy, and I feel like some people just get really stuck on this idea of data as though it's a very scary thing. But if we think about data as just the systematic recording of phenomena that occur in the world, we're all data collectors. We are collecting data through our regular lives. Like think about how we, how do you know when something's appropriate to do or not? It's that you've experienced other situations like it before. And when you walk into a room, you quickly observe, are these my colleagues or friends? So am I going to, you know, use my formal tone or my informal tone? That's how you know. You collected enough data in, in your life to know how to act. And that process of data collection, of data creation, does not happen, you know, it doesn't just drop out from the sky. There are a lot of decisions and a lot of different ways that you've filtered your life in order to understand reality. And that's really, I think, a different way to think about data. We often think about, you know, data access as a good thing or more data is better. But I think in the case of data about people in the AI age, more data maybe is better for the algorithm, but more data may not be better for humanity. And so what are the types of data we want to make digitized? What are the types of data we think are essential for business practices and innovation? But what are the types of data that are inappropriate to collect for any reason whatsoever? And I think We've made decisions about that with with human rights in terms of how do you, you know, how what types of treatment of uh, prisoners or other people is inappropriate. That's the whole idea behind torture. Is like what kinds of, you know, physical treatments and mental treatments are you are you not allowed to do or not allowed to perform against any human being regardless of the situation. So this is not new, and I think. Data literacy is really about teaching people about data and the process of data and the uses of data and the dangers of, of data. So last question, what else as individuals or members of civil society should we be doing or thinking about to advance our human rights protections regarding our data? The book really, I mean, I, I use this, this frame of becoming a data stakeholder which is a shift in mindset and in language around how, what our relationship is to data and to the AI systems that use those data. And what I mean by that is a lot of times we're thought of as data subjects, we're subject to data collection. We are the subjects of the data collection as well. Like we are literally what the data are about. But I think that's a very passive position, especially when you think about it in terms of political science. Sub subjectivity is not the same thing as citizenship. Citizenship implies something you know, more robust and more active. We can't be citizens of AI companies. We can't be citizens of, of data collectors, but I think we can be stakeholders. And this is going back to your co-creation uh, question. We are co-creators of data about us. And I think it's really important to recognize that role. It's an important role. The data would simply not exist if the sources did not consent, right? If the sources did not participate. And so I'm don't, I, I'm not saying, you know, like get rid of your Apple Watch and your smartphone. That's not what I'm saying. I think we are going to continue living our lives because a lot of these technologies even if they might have negative consequences, uh, also have positive consequences, right? You know, shopping is easier and connect and finding information is easier. Um, so I think that it's important that we start thinking about ourselves as stakeholders in the process rather than saying, well, this is just going to happen anyway. So I might as well do nothing. And I think that's that's really the first step. I think then the next step would be as data stakeholders, what kind of data governance do we want? And I think right now when people talk about data governance, they're really just talking about, you know, how transparent data collection processes are and how accessible data is for other um, entities that didn't collect the data. I really want us to start thinking about data governance as should the data be collected to begin with? So let's regulate the collection of data and not the use of data. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for joining us today on the Political Economy Forums podcast. 
No, it's so great to be here. Again, our guest today was Wendy Wong, professor at the University of British Columbia. She is the author of the new book, We the Data, Human Rights in the Digital Age. I encourage everyone to read it and continue the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichdok. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.